Now you can find, listen and subscribe to Chilling with Jens and the local Danfoss Climate Solution podcast in your RevTools app. Download it from danfoss.com. Service and support. Downloads. Hi, I'm Jens Andersen from Danfoss Climate Solution. Thank you for listening in on this, again, slightly different podcast from what we've done so far. This time, we have three of our experts discussing the topic of oversized equipment, and I can promise you that is not going to be boring. During the talk, quite a few interesting details emerge along the road of their collective experience that would probably amount to more than 75 years altogether. Stretching from the marriage of compressors and evaporators, over humidity of meat storage rooms, and all the way down to white chocolate. We hope you will enjoy it as much as we did. Please feedback to us by mailing Chilling with Jens, in one word, at danfoss.com and let us know what you think. Maybe we should uh, just let you guys um, introduce yourself one by one. Just, you know, the usual stuff that, that uh, we do. So, you're starting well, everybody with a J can start first. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, everybody with a J starts first. Okay, yeah. that's a good idea. Yeah. Okay, Jörg, hey. you please go ahead. Who are you? Well, yeah, I'm one of the Js. I am Jörg, Jörg Saar, working in the global applications team in Danfoss for quite some time. And by that, I had the possibility to see some interesting things, to learn quite a bit, and happy to to share all that in discussions like this one. And I'm still learning in discussions like this one. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Uh, Jamie, who are you and what are you doing here? Jamie Kitchen. Uh, I'm here because I was invited, man. I thought there was going to be like food or something, but apparently not. Anyways, I uh, I work for Danfoss in North America. I'm located in Canada, uh, about an hour and a half north of Toronto. And uh, I am a technical account manager um, with the Indirect Group. So we deal with wholesalers, contractors, small OEM, things like that. Um, and my background is uh, application field service engineer. Great, thanks, Jamie. And John, who are you? Um, I think most people have heard my voice before, Jens, same as you. Um, my name is John Broughton, work in the Global Application Department along with Jörg. Um, been in refrigeration since I was 16. Um, and yeah, a bit like Jamie, work in the indirect channel, so wholesaler contracting uh, in a part of the business. The fun side of things. The fun side, exactly. And Jens, you, you do all these podcasts and uh, we can hear you in every podcast, but I don't know how often you introduce yourself. So could you do that? Yes, sure, I, I can. I'm Jens Andersen and I've been working for Danfoss for this year, 44 years. I was trained an electronic engineer and have been uh, working for, among others, drives, uh, the um, human resources and uh, I've been teaching and uh, last, I don't know, probably 20 years or something like that, I've been working with uh, the cooling department before it, it became uh, Climate Solutions. So huh. that's just me. 
theme of today is oversized equipment. So, I mean, the first question I would have is, why does uh, oversized equipment come in place in, uh, at all? I mean, why not size it correctly at the beginning? Who do you want That's to answer that? A really good question. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, where well, do we start, man? Where to start? And and uh, thanks for for that question, Jens. I guess there are several reasons for that. One might be that it can happen that throughout the ordering process, everybody adds a bit of safety. Somebody yes. is doing the calculation. You need. 10 whatever, 10 kilowatts, 10 tons of refrigeration, doesn't matter, 10. Then the next one says, yeah, but adding adding a bit of safety, let's go to 12. The next one adds to 15, and in the end, you might even end up at, at 18 or 20. So th this is one potential reason why that can happen. Mm. Yeah. Like I even remember, you know, like the Hussman load forms and things like that, you always added 10% as a safety factor to it, right? Just at that time, because you weren't sure 100% of some of the details. And so you're right, let's say you, you end up with 10 tons. Well, or, you know, seven, you know, 7.8 tons or kilowatts. Well, it might happen that nobody makes a 7.8 ton condensing unit. They make a, you know, 8.7 or, uh, you know, nine ton or something like that. So you've gone from 10% and then when you make your equipment selection, you go to the first unit that has, you know, equivalent or more capacity. It usually gets more. So then you add another 10 or 12%. So in the end, um, you end up with oversized equipment. But John, I think you'll point out that when we select equipment, we select it for the worst case scenario, which might only be, what, a couple of days of the year. And so the equipment ends up spending, what, 90% or more of its time? Yeah, probably. Probably, and I think that that's one of the biggest challenges that we have in our industry, is that as you say, Jamie, it's always sized for waste case scenario. You know, those two days of summer, at least in the UK, we have here, um, and you know, we size it for a 32 ambient, maybe a 34 ambient, and the hottest day we get, you know, might be 22 or 24. So instantly, <laughs> that is oversized. Um, and if the system is oversized to begin with, then it's really oversized. Um, you know, for that particular application, and it, it's a, it, it, it's a huge challenge, and also getting the information from the end user to the contractor to the wholesaler. Sometimes information is missed out there. Also, um, just to think of a job that I was recently involved in, um, from the wholesaler point of view, it was a holding store. From the customer's point of view, it was actually a blast chill, <laughs> and the the discussion was misplaced somewhere um, along the way and you know the wrong equipment was installed mm. so there's, there's all these types of issues that i guess come into that scenario yeah that's a, that's a, that's a good point too is understanding what the, the customer actually wants and meeting that demand and if it's what they really need could be two different things mm. Mm. yeah you know we we all know if you take a cold store for example um usually the product arrives you know, roughly at the same sort of storage temperature as the, the cold store or cold room. Um, and that's absolutely fine. But if it sits outside on a pallet truck for two hours in the blazing sunshine, 
and then you try and put it in the cold room, you've mm-hmm. instantly got a much larger heat load than you calculated for. Mm-hmm. Good point. But what what is what is wrong with being on <coughs> on the safe side, uh, size wise, if we could put it that way? What 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 effect would it have, say, in a, in a cold room, for instance? I guess that's a, a good question, Jens, and I guess there's the safe side and there's the safe side. Um, as as right. we said, you know, things are generally oversized because we, we cater for that worst case scenario. Um, if it's oversized, it's going to run less, basically. So your your run hours instead of maybe uh, eight, 18 hour runtime might be 16 hours um, to do that particular capacity. But then you also get the scenario of stop, start and short cycling because it is oversized. It starts, it pulls down the temperature, goes off on thermostat, temperature rises, cuts back in. It's doing it. it it's running basically for a shorter period of time than you would imagine it to run if it was correctly sized. And cold room is one example. Um, server rooms are another example that I've had here where the system is let's say not trying to cool uh, the server room might be uh, half occupied so you're still running all the systems of refrigeration to try and keep that that space cool but they're literally just in and out on thermostat constantly so we have issues with reliability of equipment then and efficiency believe it or and, not uh, <coughs> and efficiency yeah yeah uh, and yeah. <coughs> that that's a good point jamie actually if you're starting a machine that is way too big for the uh, correct duty, then your starting current is too high. So you're actually using more electricity than you would normally be for that particular application. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. I mean, quite quite often it works. You can compare that. It's a wild comparison, but you compare that to buying apples. You go with your bicycle to the supermarket, you buy apples, bring them home, works fine. Now you take a big truck, you buy the same amount of apples, drive them home, both work. But if you live in a pedestrian area, you have a problem with the truck, with the bicycle, it's fine. It just depends on what what is the application for a code room. Quite often that works, the unit is just not switching on and off um, that often. But the efficiency can go down and so on. If you have a chiller, for example, which is heavily oversized, you might get strong fluctuations in water temperatures and and you you destroy the control of your whole system. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, and if, if you want to like go to the AC side of things, um, we were talking about this a bit earlier. The, there's, there's efficiency gains to be had in oversizing components as opposed to equipment or opposed to the entire unit but even with an oversized unit again dehumidification depends on running at a specific temperature for a specific period of time if the unit is oversized you're not only going to run for a shorter period of time and dehumidification is going to be penalized a lot of times you are running in conditions that favor sensible heat removal over latent heat removal. So you may save some money on the electricity side of things, possibly um, if you have larger components, 
but if the system's oversized, you're going to negate that efficient that those efficiency gains, and you're going to have a humidity problem on top of that. Too much humidity, and that's never a good thing in houses, especially in climates where there is a lot of you know latent energy trying to get into your house or your space. That's that's for the whole system. Yeah, and you mentioned already what happens if you oversize single components in a system, uh, so that the system might be okay size-wise, but you might have a compressor that is far too big, a, a heat exchanger that is far too big, and a valve that is far too big for all the other components in the system. Then you run into potentially totally different problems. Absolutely. Um, you know, with refrigeration, John, I, one of the things I remember from one of your classes, I remember sitting in on, you were talking about the uh, effects of evaporator size and selecting an evaporator based on a delta T. Could you just maybe share how, you know, that delta T and evaporator capacity, how that would be affected if your evaporator was oversized? Because I think it's very interesting. Thanks, Jamie. Um, yeah, that, that's a good point, actually. And the sort of three examples that I give is that if you, in a perfect world, let's say, if you had a condensed unit that did uh three kilowatts at minus five evaporating um and a condensing unit that did three kilowatts at minus five and your balance point would be uh would be five degrees which is absolutely fine you've got the right humidity everything works perfectly then if you decide that your evaporator um let's say the one that you choose does 3.4 kilowatts and your condensing unit is a little bit too small at say three three kilowatts, you immediately have a, a mismatch between the capacities of your uh, condensed unit and your evaporator. Now, in that case, the condensed unit is smaller than your evaporator, so your suction pressure is going to rise. Oh, okay. You would never, never come down to your desired temperature, right? Yep, yep. And if you do it the other way around and if you then said, okay, my evaporator is three kilowatts, my condensing unit is 3.4 kilowatts, your condensing unit, as I always say to the engineers, is basically sucking more out of the evaporator than the evaporator can evaporate. So then immediately your evaporating temperature is going to fall. Oh, it's trying to reach a balance point with it. Okay. Yeah, it's yes. trying to reach a balance point. And, and that balance point, that, that TD alters which obviously affects your humidity within your cold room. Now, if your cold room is storing, you know, sealed goods, drinks, um, cans of beer, things like that, no issue because your humidity is not an issue. But if you're storing fresh meat, for example, you don't want a low humidity, you want a high humidity because otherwise you're going to dry your meat out. Hmm. If you don't get your humidity right, if you have, let's say, too high humidity with fresh meat, your fresh meat's going to sweat. So the humidity level within the cold room is, you know, very important, obviously, depending what you're storing in your cold room. If it's mixed goods, um, then you try around about the 80% mark. Um, you know, if it's uh, fresh meat, you want to be at the correct humidity for that type of meat and the storage that you're doing with that meat. So that balance point affects the evaporating temperature, which affects the temperature difference on the evaporator, which affects the humidity within the room itself. Kind of gives the cold chain a whole new meaning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Everything's tied and, together. Yeah, and, and 
it, it is important because, like you said in the beginning, Jamie, that you know you might be able to find a condenser unit that does four kilowatts. You might find an evaporator that maybe doesn't do four kilowatts at that condition. It does five kilowatts at that condition. So then, what is the effect of marrying those two components together? Um, yeah, and people have to understand that. Particularly important if you're storing, you know, delicate goods within that um, cauldron. Yes, yes, yes. Surprisingly enough, I've seen some bad situations with stored flowers and things like that that must be stored at a relatively narrow window. And once you lose, once you go past a certain point, you can't get it back again. It's not like you can add water to these things and rehydrate them again very easily. So unfortunately, you lose the value of whatever was stored in the freezer. Mm. And mm. that can be, a, or the cooler rather, and that can be a lot. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a good discussion. It is a good discussion, particularly as you say, when you're storing, you know, things like flowers, fresh meat, um, fish is a good example, high-end chocolate, patisserie, things like that. You have to get that humidity absolutely spot on. Otherwise, you can have some uh, some some issues. Um, Jörg, you you were talking about the components. What what do you think is the most oversized component in a refrigeration system that we come across? So going away from the compressor, uh, condenser, evaporator, but more the control side. That is a really good question. I would guess a solenoid valve, because quite often a solenoid valve and check valve. They, they are very, very often selected according to their connection size, not really according to, to their capacity. And then you can quite easily oversize them. Mm. Yeah, I think I would agree. How about you, Jeremy? Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. Um, we run into problems with pilot-operated solenoid valves. A lot of times in liquid lines, <clears throat> if you combine it being oversized, you're your your pressure differential across it oftentimes is marginal to in order to provide enough help you know enough lift to actually get it to open and close reliably you know especially if you see them installed at the bottom of of of, of liquid downpipes where you have a, a pressure increase at the bottom a lot of times your subcooling can increase 10 15 degrees at the bottom of these that adds capacity to the valve and suddenly they become unreliable so you know, it's important to realize that on the larger solenoid valves, you really need that pressure difference in order to help it to operate. And as George says, if it's oversized, a lot of times that can cause an immediate issue and cause reliability problems open and closing. And on top of that, they can be hard to diagnose because it's kind of like takes us back to the issue with your automobile where, you know, you have a problem with your car and as soon as you take it to the dealership, it doesn't do what it is doing, right? So, you know, the technician can be there, but if it's not acting up, unless they are wise enough to actually look at the nameplate, and I'm probably heading down a whole other avenue here, I can just see it now. Unless you check the capacity of the actual valve against the system and take into some other details, it can be very hard to diagnose. Mm, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, agree. And the same, uh, the same, what you mentioned, Jamie. You can see that on check valves. If you have a highly oversized check valve 
and then you go to a part load condition, which is usually okay for that check valve, but if it is highly oversized, then you come below the point that the check valve really stays open and it starts to open and close, and that can be pretty fast. So, so you have a rattling noise, and this, mm. of course, will not uh, do good to the check valve. It will not survive that for a long time. Yeah, good point. Yeah, and it can be, and it can throw you off too if you're trying to listen for it and figure out what it is, unless you actually take a walk to see what's making the noise. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm just thinking back to my days, and I can, uh, I can relate to that for sure. <laughs> yeah. Have you been thinking about any other components, John? Um, I'd probably say one question that I get asked quite regularly is dryer size. Um, you know, can it be too big? Um, yes, it can. Yes, we we can explain the the too small for the drying capacity of the dryer itself. Um, but how big is too big? I, I see it a lot in the smaller sizes on critical charge systems. So let's say you know you 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 have a three cubic inch dryer in a uh, you, know, you know quarter or you know one third horsepower refrigeration system. And, you know, it says you got to put in, you know, X amount of refrigerant. Well, if you increase the dryer size to five because you think, you know, you're adding insurance and you add that critical charge, what you don't realize is you've actually added internal volume to the system for the refrigerant when you go to the larger dryer. And so the critical refrigerant charge that you add may actually put you under certain circumstances or quite often in an undercharged state because, you know, now your refrigerant is going to be filling up that filter dryer rather than doing useful work in your evaporator and condenser and that can prevent issues that can present issues down the road as well mm -hmm. how about if it's a non-critically charged system meaning it's got a receiver well then you see any then it's kind of difficult to oversize. <laughs> yeah. as, as long as you have enough refrigerant available that that you always have enough refrigerant in the system doing what it should do and not just hanging around in the filter dryer. Yeah. I, I don't really see an issue. I mean, you, you, you cannot dry the refrigerant out more than to a certain point. Um, That's a good point, really yeah big issue there it's it's just a waste of of space and 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 refrigerant volume mm. you don't need it but mm -hmm. yeah it doesn't do a lot of harm yeah okay. good I, point i would I, I would agree i would agree uh, i think another thing too that people think if this is a txv it's it's kind of funny how when you have an adaptive control like a thermal expansion valve it's easier in other words there's probably less danger to oversize it to a certain extent compared to undersizing it because if you undersize a, a txv or any type of, of of expansion valve um you know it's it's going to be throttled open beyond where it should be your super heat's going to go higher your you know average evaporator temperature is going to be higher you know, all of these things can lead to inefficiencies, but a TXV, if it's installed correctly, is fully capable of throttling down, right? So it'll operate at 70 or 80% of its stroke, its capacity, 
it'll do that happily all day long and, and give you good uh, give you good uh, results as long as it's installed correctly. If it's not installed correctly and it hunts, it's just gonna if it's oversized, it's just going to you know add that much more to the problem. But you know, taking into account that everything's done right, oversizing the TXV by 10, 20 percent usually does not have large detrimental uh, impact. Yeah. You guys agree with that? Absolutely. Yes. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and yeah. and even if the valve is, let's say, right on it, its limit, Jamie, of capacity, as you say, the the percentage swing between fully open and let's say partially closed, it can it can turn down quite happily to thirty percent of max capacity anyway. Yeah, um, and even if it's operating at its maximum capacity for the majority of its time, it still regulates there, you know, more than uh, sufficiently. So yeah, no issues at all. Yeah. Of course, there are limits to all of that. I mean, if if you need a five kilowatt expansion valve and put a 50 kilowatt or 100 kilowatt expansion valve in, well, <laughs> you can everything, you can get Cost more than the compressor does. Limit, right? <laughs> <laughs> you got too yeah. much money to spend yeah. or it's the only one you have on the truck, right? And you're not driving back <laughs> to get a different one. Oh, man. Jens, you look like you're thinking about something, man. Yeah, well, actually, uh, how about uh, piping? How, how, oh. uh, yeah, <laughs> you would have to go down that road, wouldn't you? Yeah, Jamie's favorite subject. Oh, man, yeah, pi piping is something that is kind of a, a whole class onto its own. It used to be more of an issue, and I'm going to say the old days, and I'm talking about you know, before my time, you know, when the earth was still cooling, kind of thing. Um, and you had the old style oils and, and things like that that were, you know, very similar to automotive oils. You know, we studied, you know, double suction risers and all these kinds of things to, you know, ensure that you had proper oil entrainment back to the compressor. And it really, you know, revolves around refrigerant velocity. You know, if you think of the refrigerant like a wind, if the wind goes past a certain speed, it's going to pick stuff up and carry it. And that's really what you're hoping is going to happen in the refrigerant line with your oil. It's going to take the oil once it leaves the compressor and reliably circulate it through and bring it back. So oversized piping in the essence of, you know, increasing your required refrigerant charge can also cause problems by it's just a bigger opening. So a bigger opening for the same flow means your velocity is reduced. And if you reduce your velocity enough, then all your oil is going to sit at the bottom of risers and, you know, other things, and it's not going to reliably come back to the compressor. Now, you may think, oh, I'll put an oil separator in there. It's going to take out 90% of the oil. Well, that just means, you know, instead of the system running out of oil in an hour, it's going to run out of oil in nine hours, right? You know, it's, it's, not, it's not going to cure your situation. So, um, this usually happens if you have multiple stages of of compressor capacity or you have an unloader and a semi-hermetic where you're dropping the refrigerant capacity down substantially if your piping is oversized and you don't take into account that reduction in capacity a lot of times you know you end up running oil as compressor and you really don't you know if, if that's never a good thing mm. Mm. Totally. Very true. If I think back 
Jamie, when I used to look after warranties in the UK. Um, and I, I don't know what the figure is now, but uh, then 20% of all compressors we got back had zero oil in. Um, yeah. So it, was, it, it was quite a sort of common issue, and it's probably still a common issue today. Um, one sort of topic that again get gets asked, um, I think people understand the suction line velocity, we need to get the oil back, we need to have the right velocity, you know, the suction riser, things like that, goosenecks, swan necks on the uh, pipe work. What one topic that gets asked a little bit is the liquid line. Um, you know, and, and my sort of general answer is, well, keep the velocity below one meter a second, no issue. Um, if it's too small, then you can have issues with noise, um, liquid hammer, things such as that. Um, then the question came the other way. Well, OK, if you go larger on your liquid line, um, you drop your velocity. Um, what challenges do we have there? And I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. Oh, that's again. Let's say, for example, you've got a five-eighths-inch liquid line. Well, what's the next size up? It's you know seven-eighths. You know, let's say for example, well, the internal volume of a seven-eighths-inch run of liquid line is enormously larger than a five-eighths. So right then and there, you've had to map, you know, increase your refrigerant charge a lot of times um, in order to you know maintain your velocities and everything else that you talk about. Um, it can be hard sometimes if if you don't adapt that to maintain a solid liquid seal in front of your metering devices can be another issue. A lot of times you don't want to be getting uh, vapor into your uh, um, metering devices and things like that. But you know, as far as I'm concerned, the biggest challenge with these uh, systems where you have remote condensers is that. Uh, a lot of times the compressor is limited in the amount of refrigerant charge that it can safely handle in the system. So that and the fact that you also have to, you know, adjust your oil charge based on the amount of piping run and refrigerant charge, right? It's like a ratio. If you're pumping, you know, 2% mass of oil with your refrigerant and you increase your refrigerant charge, you know, massively, then you need to take into account your oil as well because it's going to be mixed in with the refrigerant, especially with the liquid line. So again, you know, you get to a point where it negatively affects the system in that you have to add additional safeties to the compressors. You know, and I'm not just talking about crankcase heaters. I'm talking about increased receiver capacity, especially if you happen to have some kind of, you know, condensing pressure regulator to limit your or maintain condensing pressure during cold weather. You know, with these extra massive refrigerant charges, what happens if it comes back in the off cycle or something like that? Or it, 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 you know, fluctuates and you get more coming back at one time. Now, how, how is that going to affect the compressor? So now you got to put a suction line accumulator in with the compressor to protect it and things like that. This is all made, you know, information is available in the application guides, but nothing happens in a vacuum by itself when you change one part of the system by increasing your liquid line and you increase your refrigerant capacity you increase your oil requirements now you're going to maybe surpass the safe operating uh limits for a refrigerant amount in the system so you have to add additional safeties 
all of these things compound a lot of times and it's like a rabbit hole you don't want to go down mm. i think that's a, a very good point jamie that you make there actually that one part of the system affects the other parts or, or parts of the system mm -hmm. um i think that that's a, a very good point to make for sure yeah uh, if, if we look at I don't know if it's it's the the most important. Well, I guess most people will uh, look at the compressor as the most comp uh, important component in a system. Uh, so, would you say that you should actually start out with the size of the compressor? Meaning, is is that the decisive uh, component in a system? Mm, I don't know about that one. It affects everything else, but. I think as we just said, Jens, um, you can start with the evaporator and compare it to the compressor, or you can start with the compressor and compare it to the evaporator. But either way, it's like a teeter-totter, where as you change one, it affects the other side. So, I mean, uh, you're, I mean you're, you start with the load on the system, correct? And then I guess whatever, whatever part you want to start with, what do you normally do? What would you recommend <laughs> out of curiosity? Uh, um, I'm just bouncing uh, the question it's, over to you. It's, it's really, it's really those <laughs> those two. I, I, I never, I never see that as. I mean, those are single components, yeah, but but they are married. I mean, the, those two, that those two are the ones you need to select. That's where it starts. If if they don't fit to each other, compressor or condensing unit, and and evaporator then forget it then then you can do whatever you want it it will not work yeah mm. absolutely yeah At no, least that's as you want. True. i mean it might yeah. work somehow but <laughs> yeah not not <laughs> as you want so those two are the ones that that tell you everything and then you you might need to play around because as you said jamie you you need 10 tons and now you're heat exchanger your evaporator is only available in 9.5 or in in 10.8 well then you choose what you need right and and you probably go for 10.8 then now you yes. select the compressor accordingly not to 10 tons but to 10.8 because you want to find that right balance point and the other way around, if then all of a sudden your compressor is not available for 10.8, but for 11, well, that that's probably okay. But if it's only for 12 or 9, well, 12 is something else than, than 11. Mm -hmm. um, you need to play a bit to, to get the right pair. And if you have that, that's where you start with all the other stuff. Agree. Okay. You know, it's funny. And I think I just I'm going to I'm going to uh, allude to maybe a possible discussion in the future. So don't uh, don't yell at me here. But this is um, endemic to a fixed speed system that we're talking about here. So for, for, for those who have been, you know, following the industry at all, we'll say, well, hey, wouldn't this oversize undersize nonsense? Wouldn't this go away with variable speed? And of course, you know, the the 40,000 foot, you know, answer is yes, it would. But variable speed is not something that is just drop in replacement for a fixed speed compressor and all your, uh, you know, problems are going to go away. 
uh, it has to be engineered specifically. You have all of these other um, quantities that you have to take into account. And so, again, I think this is a topic for another day, but um, we are referring here specifically to fixed speed systems that, uh, you know, operate at a given um, frequency, you know, given a rotation rate or, or, or pumping rate or whatever. So that's that's a reality what we have here right now. So you take that fixed speed system and you change other parts of it. You know, you either take one that's slightly more capacity or slightly less capacity, but it happens in steps. Right. That's that. that's kind of yeah. where this comes from. Yeah. Agree. And that's a good idea to talk about to talk about variable speeds at another date, because some of your problems walk out of the door. But at the same time, some new problem friends come in. With <laughs> yes, and that's speed. a hot. So yeah, you need to talk to them then all yeah. of a sudden. <laughs> that's that's just changing out one set of in-laws for another. Do you know what I mean? So it's. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I maybe shouldn't have said that, but you get my point where, um, yeah, there's 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 no free lunch, so to speak. And I think a lot of companies have learned the hard way about that, that it it is, you know, every time you answer a question, two more pop up. And I think that's kind of a good analogy when it, it goes to variable speed, because there's a lot of engineering work that has to go into the background in order to. To, to to bring something that's reliable and you know user friendly, so to speak. so to speak. Yeah, I, I hear us talking in another podcast about that already. And yeah. it sounds like yeah. yeah, and even the control philosophy of a variable speed machine, because there's some discussions I hear about whether you do it off the suction pressure or you do it off the room temperature, um, and which one is better. So I think there's some some good discussions there. Oh yeah, that's yeah, that's yeah. It's almost like a circular argument if you if you want to get down into that. But you hit the nail on the head when it comes to controls, because I think a lot of what we've learned, you know, as we dive deeper into variable speed, is that a lot of the challenges come from the control side, and not just you know your controller, but getting your controller to play nice with the you know the the current or existing control setup in the building. Um, you know, and software programmers have known this for years that getting two different languages to talk to each other can be a challenge. And a lot of times, you know, when it's a lot hotter or colder in the space than it's supposed to be, that comes down to the control side of things a lot of times. So, um, again, there's a lot more depth to that than I think people realize. Mm, that's yeah. that's true. And just coming back to the fixed speed system there's one thing that came up in my mind when you said control and when you oversize a compressor for example during service in case you do something like that assuming the system was designed in a good way you have a compressor failure and now you don't have the right compressor size available you put in another compressor uh, that yes. has a higher capacity Yes. That changes your balance points and so on. So you have a system issue. And sometimes you might even go into electric problems that your your relays and so on are, are not sized for that. Your switches are too weak for that bigger compressor. So yes. even that can happen when you do that during a service when when you have uh, when when you mm -hmm. put in the wrong compressor. Yeah, plus they're cycling a lot more often as well. Yeah. So um yeah. yeah, you know, it's it's 
it's it's it's very interesting, you know, as we go down this because again, I think the big pivot point here, the foundation this rests on, and we've already alluded to a couple of times, is the balance point. And you know, we talk about the compressor and the evaporator being married, and that's a hundred percent true, because they're always going to try and find a balance point. And if you size everything correctly or perfectly in a perfect world, the balance point would be exactly where you want the conditions to be in your cooler or freezer or whatever it is. If you could just magically make a compressor and evaporator with the perfect capacity, they would balance precisely at, you know, a box temperature of five degrees C or whatever it happens to be. But we can't do that. We have to basically pick the units that are available to us and then that balance point will change slightly. But if we do it right, the balance point will be close enough that we, with our controls, can still cycle the system and come up with an environment, you know, a balance point that we can live with, right? You have the proper humidity. You can, you know, sell your product with the proper weight because it's not dehumidified or it's not spoiled or whatever. So, really that's what we're trying to do is we're trying we're, we're given this narrow range that we're allowed to operate in and we're selecting components that will balance within that narrow range or within that range that's given this so when we you know George said if you pick a compressor that's too big or an evaporator that's too small suddenly that balance point falls outside of where we want it to be and there's only so much you can do with your controls you know if it's too much you can't you know increase your differential in temperature or decrease it enough to make up for that difference and it will never work properly no matter what you do yeah i think that, that that's a good point jamie and one of the uh, percentages i always try and remember is that if you've got a one kelvin td difference uh, on your evaporator it, it affects the humidity by plus or minus five percent Really, I did not know that. That's actually a very interesting. Really, that's a lot. Yeah, actually. Yeah, that's that's a lot. Exactly. It, it so, is a lot. Yeah. yeah. It, it so, is a lot, and that's that's the big challenge when you when you have fruit storages, long term fruit or vegetable storage, for example, and you want to keep them in a warehouse for for weeks and several months, then you need to be pretty precise in your humidity and quite high, not too high, but quite high. And that's a real challenge to keep it that high. Yeah. 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 I mean, if you think of potatoes, for example, um, I spend a lot of time in potato storage. Um, they're harvested one year, and that basically sees you through for the next year until they're harvested again. So mm -hmm. we can't be in there, you know, for a good six months or more, um, keeping it absolutely um, spot on. Man, yeah, yeah, you know, and, I, I, and that, then, that's impressive. And then have a high enough evaporating temperature compared to your room temperature, but still be able to produce superheat for your expansion valve. So that's that's <laughs> that's a challenge. You, you need to know what you do there. It's it's not really a walk in the park. You you really need to know what you do there. Yeah, that's another thing. That's yeah, I never you're right. Yeah, superheat. If your evaporator is a little too big and your loads are low, you're gonna have a very low superheat coming out of your 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 TXV might be open fifteen or twenty percent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not gonna be happy. No, yeah, good no, point. Exactly. 
So, Jens, are we still on track here, or have we totally gone off the rails? <laughs> no. Uh, I mean, the discussion is always open, uh, and uh, I think we've touched on quite a few very interesting uh, points, uh, not the least mentioning the next upcoming discussion, maybe, maybe. Yeah. Um, but uh, maybe we should just wrap it up for now. We've been talking now for like uh, three quarter of an hour, almost. Okay. So if so, we're almost uh, done, is it safe to we can? So is it safe to use the term air airflow now? Because I didn't want to say airflow before we had uh, we were almost done because that <laughs> just throws everybody off the. Uh, the Go ahead, right please. There. Ugh, airflow, yeah, you can man. make you can make two podcasts out of that. Just yeah, I was just gonna say we could sit there and have a discussion on airflow forever, but uh, um, I, I think that's something that maybe we should throw out there for a topic down the road because uh, airflow. You know, when I was starting out, one of the guys that mentored me basically said that if your airflow is incorrect, none of that, none of the other measurements you take will have any meaning. Right. Well, then and, let, me uh, ask, let me ask the question then, or do you want to ask the question, what about oversized fans, Jens? Go ahead, Jörg. Well, yeah, we talked about a lot of components now, but what, what about stuff like fans? Can you oversize a fan? Yeah, I mean, geez, man, I'm trying to think back to college now the, with the fan curves. And uh, I don't know, man. I mean, the fan is still going to give you... I mean, it's it's going to spin at the same speed, right? It's going to draw the same amount of power because it's going to basically, you know, the the mass flow of the air is what is current causing your your uh, current draw. I think the restriction there is on the downside. I need to go back and look at this again. I think you just highlighted the how much I have forgotten about the airflow side, and. I think I need to go back and look at some of my old documentation on that because uh, I'm not sure if I'm just getting old or there's uh, maybe there's too much air between my ears. I don't know. I, no, but Jamie, <laughs> Jamie, you can always, Jamie, you can always uh, pull up the uh, Joker again and say uh, speed your uh, speed regulated um, fans, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Uh, I mean, a lot of I, fans are. You can easily do speed regulation on a fan nowadays. Still, a lot of fans are not. And yeah. and I get the impression, maybe for me that accounts a bit as well, that air, it's just there, right? You shoveled <laughs> it around and you don't worry too much about it. But, but it has quite some influence. If you don't have enough airflow in the code room, you, you don't have a good temperature distribution in the code room. If there is too much airflow in the code room, um, well, what happens then? I, I don't really know exactly, apart from using far too much energy for pumping all the air around. That sounds like a John question, because I'm going to assume that you're going to overdry stuff out maybe. but uh... I, I have some nice PowerPoints, Jamie, that I made for some training material and uh, it covers all the different evaporator fan types, um, air throw. Airflow, um, basically from from a cauldron point of view, or or any product that you're trying to chill with air, that air needs to, what I would say, envelope or wrap around that product, pick up the heat, and then take it back to the evaporator. That's in essence what we're trying to do. We're transporting heat from the product back to the evaporator. Um, if we don't do that, 
then we're not going to chill down those those goods, um, you know, correctly. And that I think is is often overlooked. Okay, if it's a small meat locker, you know, three meters by three meters, then no great issue. Um, if you're in a large, uh, you know, freezer room, coal store, you know, maybe it's 25, 30 meters long or bigger, then you need to ensure that the air coming off those evaporators reaches the furthest part of that store, gets the heat off the product and brings it back to the evaporator. And there's many ways to do that with many different types of fans, um, you know, whether it's uh, axial fans, long case, short case, blah, blah, blah. Um, many, many different things you can do. I think one of one of the commonest things I see, and again, not not in small rooms so much, but in the sort of medium sized cold rooms, is that directly in front of the evaporator on the ceiling, they'll put a light fitting and they'll put that light fitting <laughs> in front of the evaporator, which instantly kills the air throw. Yes, um, because it hits that and drops straight down because it's it, already it's already got a higher dent, a higher yeah. density than the surrounding air to begin with. Right. So, yeah, exactly. And oh, it just man. Hits that fitting, drops down. And then the furthest part of the room, um, it's not picking up any air. And particularly in freezer rooms, you can always see that because that one light fitting is encased with, you know, frost and ice like you would not believe. Yes. Um, and th there's 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 lots of, uh, you know, challenges. I've seen the evaporators in particularly freezer rooms. If there's internal steelwork, maybe it's in the basement of a shop. Um, they've built a box around the supporting beams of the structure, so the actual ceiling's not smooth. So again, you have exactly the same issue. Uh, Built-in baffles. Yeah. Built-in baffles, you know, so there's, it, it, it is incredibly important and the things you can do to keep that air uh, throw and uh, flow around the room. I've even seen in, in, you know, some stores where you've got an evaporator and directly in front of the evaporator, they'll put an aisle of product instead of, you know, spacing the, the, the <laughs> yes. walking aisle. Yes, uh, on those wheeled throwers. carts. Yeah, with the yeah. wheeled carts with the trays. Yeah, they, they. oh, I'm going to get this later, so I'm going to put it right here so it has easy access, right? Yeah. You know, meanwhile, yeah. the, the evaporator is blowing everything off the trays, right? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I, uh, yeah. but you know, yeah. Go ahead. Have you seen this? This I don't call it solution, but the uh, try to be solution that somebody puts in a larger fan. If you have these these baffles or these these uh, points where the air is the airflow is interrupted, but a bigger mm -hmm. fan would not help. It it no. just interrupts even more airflow, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. What what I have seen, Jörg, is a um, spacer fan was the term I used was that you would have an evaporator and then if it didn't have quite the throw that you needed, you would then have an axial fan basically mm -hmm. mounted to the ceiling of the room to drag mm -hmm. the air further along. It's um, like a booster I, fan. Yeah, booster fan. Um, I've seen that used quite quite frequently to try and uh, you know move the air around, mm -hmm. um, particularly in deep freeze rooms because you want to get that heat back to your evaporator and if you don't, then the expansion valve doesn't see any superheat, valve shuts down, temperature rises, you have all those you know, challenges. So I think yeah. air, row and flow are incredible, incredibly important. One point to note, Jamie, and you said what happens, or is it you, Jörg, if you have too much air flow on mm -hmm. a product? Um, things like, uh, and, and this is particular to open, um, let's say high-end chocolate, for example, that will go white. Uh, really? If you have, 
if you have a high air flow uh, over the product, you will turn the chocolate white. So there's... Why, could you blow all the brown out of it? Like, how does that even work, <laughs> man? Like, what happens? I mean... <laughs> I don't know. I'm not a chemist, but... Uh, oh, that's, okay. That's, uh, Told and by the I, way, no, that's not how they make white chocolate. That's oh, something. Uh, yeah, okay, that was my next question. Is what am I eating? Right, I don't eat white chocolate. I think it's fake, but uh, yeah. Um, well, you know, uh, just to overstay our welcome here, who here has sat in a restaurant and had an oversized diffuser above them that doesn't have enough velocity? And what happens to that dense cold air? It drops right down the back of your neck. Right. That has to be the most uncomfortable feeling when you're in a in a restaurant. It's hot outside. The units running flat out and this cold air is dumping right down the back of your neck. I mean, you almost have to go see a physiotherapist after the end of it because, you know, you're so stiff. Right. From the not to mention your foods, you know, 18 degrees Celsius before you get a chance to finish it. Right. So anyways. Pet peeve. I don't know what you're talking about. I never had to experience anything like that. <laughs> really? Well, you must live in a place where there's no air conditioning, man. Or maybe no, everything no, no. is designed much better than us, man. I don't know. but I'm, I know exactly what you're talking about. I mean, it's, 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 it's really very, very uncomfortable, um, yes. to put it nicely. Yeah. And I understand restaurants are put into buildings that weren't necessarily designed for anything. They are just laid out and, you know, somebody leases a space and decides to put whatever they want in there, right? But really, can we not just all agree to get rid of these large square diffusers with, you know, you know, one grate in them that just dumps the air out? Can we not go to a, you know, higher velocity mixing diffuser so that it has a chance to mix with the room air high up above the occupation level before it drops back down again. That's all I'm asking. That's all I want for Christmas, man. So yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. That would be great. Yes. Okay, guys. Um, I, I I think I need to say this again. Thank you so much for attending. We've now been talking for, yeah, close to, uh, let's see, what is it? Almost uh, an hour, guys. So there you go. Yeah. I'm pretty sure we could uh, even talk another hour if if we are into or going down some of the rabbit, uh, rabbit holes that you've mentioned along the way. But thank you so much. Um, <laughs> yeah, good. Yeah, <laughs> I think we'll 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 uh, I'll we'll just kill it here. Ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> also that. Yeah. But uh, this was great. Um, maybe we fun. should do that again uh, someday. <clears throat> the three yeah, of us, fine. the four of us, sorry. Yes. I enjoyed that. Yeah, Me as well. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Yeah. yeah. But uh, well, then it's about, yeah, closing time here in Denmark, at least. I don't know about you guys, but uh, yeah, well, Jamie, you're just out of the bed. So uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, the whole day in front, for, of you, in front of you, yeah, right? I'm going down for coffee. Yep. It's yeah. time to get dressed now, Jamie. <laughs> yes, I know. Take <laughs> off. I got to put some pants on. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but thank you so much, guys. Uh, I'll edit and uh, put it together. Again, thank you so much for listening in. And please feedback to us by mailing chillingwithjens, in one word, at danfoss.com, and let us know what you think. And above all, stay cool. Stay cool.